We've just completed the first paragraph of the Peloponnesian War, and among a number of things that we found in that first paragraph is that from this particular war, Thucydides claims to have found a universal teaching. There's something about this war that has universal validity to all of human life, which is to say to human life simply. There's something about this war that transcends war and applies to human life simply, to all aspects of human life and political community. Now that's to say that Thucydides has found within this war something about the very nature of man himself. And the way that this manifested itself in the text was that in the opening line, what Thucydides says is that he wrote about the war in expectation that it was going to be a great war. And then a few lines later, all in the same paragraph, he moves from using the word war to using the word motion, the Greek word there is stasis. And what he says is that this was certainly the greatest ever motion, stasis, among the Greeks, and one which affected a good part of the barbarian world too even, you could say, most of mankind. So this war affects all of mankind. It is a universal war. So let's be a little more clear on what we mean by this universal war, because as Thucydides clearly says, the war is universal because it affects both Greek and barbarian, and therefore the majority of mankind, so to speak. And so it's within that so to speak that everything hinges. The war is universal, but obviously not every nation participates in the war. And therefore, if it's the case that the war affects all of mankind without all of mankind participating in the war, then one element of this universal aspect of the war is that Thucydides is claiming within this war can be seen all possibilities of human natures on display. And the fact that he says between Greeks and barbarians lets us know that what Thucydides is doing here is that he is effectively dividing all of mankind into two poles. You have on the one hand Greekness, and then you have on the other hand barbarians. And it's from there that we saw within the opening paragraph these couplets that Thucydides seems to understand as the universal characteristics revealed in the war. Simply to repeat what those are is war and peace, Greekness and barbarian, Sparta, Athens. These seem to be the extremes of oppositions that make the Peloponnesian War so climactic. And by climactic, I simply mean the war that reveals the truth about all of these oppositions. Another way to phrase that that gets us back in the direction of our larger theme of technology and nihilism that we're about to really see on great display is to phrase it this way. The universality of the war is that it exhausts all human possibilities. It's not that it includes everyone, only that it encompasses all the fundamental alternatives in human nature and it reveals the nature of them as possibilities. And so the war shows the nature of man simply. And it's the way that Thucydides ends that first paragraph as he leads into a discussion of the most ancient things that's going to segue directly into how this text speaks to the question of technology. Because what he's about to do is provide us an examination into beginnings simply. So from looking at the war and moving from the war 
to an understanding of this much broader thing he refers to as a stasis, Thucydides feels compelled to begin by looking at beginnings simply. And this is going to lead into Thucydides' account of progress. And what's so crucial for us is that Thucydides is going to provide an account of progress by way of techne, art, what we would think of as technology, that is lacking in all of the kind of baggage that we associate with progress today. In other words, this history with a capital H, history is a kind of causality. That is not what's going to be going on in Thucydides' account of progress. It has much more to do with, as I had pointed out just a moment ago, the fundamental insight that Thucydides has gleaned from this particular war and understood it as a universality of human nature. So it's the movement in that first paragraph from the expectation of a great war to something which is referred to as the greatest stasis motion of the Greeks ever that Thucydides is going to turn to this inquiry into beginnings simply. And the most important claim is that last sentence in the opening paragraph. What he says there is, I judge that earlier events were not on the same scale, either as regards their wars or in other respects. Now, as I pointed out previously, the war is the Trojan War. And so implied in that statement, of course, is going to be Homer. But it's also going to be the Persian War. And so attendant upon that claim of the universality of this particular war is effectively a critique of the entire tradition prior to himself. Now, we recognize this today as a kind of deconstruction or a destruction of the tradition. And so we need to be perfectly clear about what we mean when we see this kind of return to beginnings simply. We're in the presence of a thorough revolution of all thought. You see this, for instance, in late modernity and post-modernity. So, for instance, you'll have a number of people claiming that philosophy didn't even exist prior to them. This, of course, is going to be Kant and Hegel. And then you're going to have various philosophers give entire critiques of the whole tradition, going all the way back to the very beginnings of Western philosophy. This is, for instance, what you see in Nietzsche. This is what you're going to see in Heidegger. And this is also what you're going to see in Leo Strauss, all in the 19th and 20th century. So that's how important this return to beginnings is that Thucydides is providing. This is not mere history. This is something far more encompassing than, as I say, mere history. In fact, what's going on here is that the insight that Thucydides has found from the particular war is so universal that it requires him to return to the very origins of all things because he understands a new principle of all things. Now, the word right there, principle or source, is very important because that's how this next section that we're going to look at has been named, how it's come down to us in the tradition. The Greek word for principle or source is arche, and the way in which the next roughly 19 paragraphs of the text have come down to us, have been referred to as the archaeology. In other words, what is being presented by Thucydides is an examination of the archai, of the sources, principal origins. He's beginning everything anew. That's how powerful the insight is that he's had regarding the Peloponnesian War. 
and how encompassing it is of not just Greekness, but human nature itself. So turning to the second paragraph, what we have is the following regarding Thucydides' entry into an examination of beginnings simply, the archai, the principles. He says the following, he says, It's evident that long ago what is now called Hellas had no stable settlements. Instead, there were various migrations in these early times, and each group readily abandoned their own territory whenever forced to do so by those with superior numbers. He says, for there was no commerce, and people were insecure about making contact with each other, either by land or sea. So they each lived off their own land, just at subsistence level, and neither produced any surplus goods nor planted the ground, since they had no walls and never knew when some invader might come and rob them. They took the view that they could secure their daily needs for sustenance anywhere, and so they were not troubled about uprooting and moving on, with the consequence being that they had no cities of any size or other general resources to make them strong. He says it was always the finest land that was most subject to change of population, namely what is now called Thessaly, Boeotia, most of the Peloponnese, excluding Arcadia and the best parts elsewhere says in the quality of the land gave some groups more power than others and that led to internal conflict now that word for conflict is motion stasis that we saw in the first paragraph and so to repeat he says and the quality of the land gave some groups more power than others and that led to internal conflict which destroyed them and at the same time encouraged outsiders to have designs on them he says attica at any rate has been free of such strife, and from the earliest times, on account of its poor soil, and it's always been inhabited by the same people. Now we need to understand Attica there that he's referring to is Athens. So he's saying Athens did not suffer all of these problems. He says, this is a good illustration of my argument that it was because of relocations that other places did not develop in the same way as Attica. For the most powerful figures from other places of Greece, who were driven out either by war or internal conflict, resorted to the safety of Athens, and by becoming citizens right from the very earliest times, they so increased the city's population that Attica could not contain them, and the Athenians later sent out colonies to occupy Ionia as well. Okay, so there's a lot that's been said right there, and let me go back and we'll look very carefully at the importance of what has been said. But just as an initial summary, notice that the paragraph has begun in a kind of weakness and effectiveness of the Greeks, and it has ended in an explanation of why it is that Athens, and as he says very explicitly, from the very earliest times, in other words, from the beginning simply, was not subject to all of the problems that the rest of Greece had. And in fact, Athens flourished so much that it was able to send out colonies. So there's something very unique about Athens that's going on here in contradistinction to all of the rest of Greece. And in fact, we can even say more based on the first paragraph in regards to the all-important concept of motion, stasis. What is happening throughout all of Greece is motion. That's what characterizes most especially all of those problems that he's listed that Athens is not subject to. So Athens from the very beginning was afforded rest. So you have rest in Athens which allows for flourishing versus 
all of the motions that are going on outside of Athens that it does not allow them to flourish. So let's look back at the beginning of the paragraph and really get an idea for what is characteristic of these motions that the rest of Greece suffers, which Athens does not. And notice that in the opening sentence he says, it's evident that long ago what is now called Hellas had no stable settlements. The key to recognizing what's being said there is he says what is now called Hellas. What Thucydides is saying is that there was no Greece. Greece did not exist at this point. So we really are at the very beginnings. And notice especially what is absent at these beginnings. The gods. There are no gods here. He says what instead they had were various migrations in these early times, and each group readily abandoned their own territory whenever forced to do so with superior numbers. So you don't want small numbers, you want superior numbers. He says there was also no commerce, so you need commerce. So when we put those things together to construct our itemized listing here, what we have is that the beginnings simply for Thucydides, first, don't include the gods. There's no account of the gods here so far. Also, characteristic of these constant motions are small numbers. You want large numbers. Also characteristic of these constant motions is a lack of commerce. You need commerce. So we have those three things at least so far. And again, we need to emphasize how this paragraph ends with regard to Athens. Athens, not being subject to these motions, was able to flourish. Characteristic of Athens in this paragraph is rest. So you have rest versus motion going on in this paragraph. And attendant upon rest would seem to be flourishing, certainly large numbers, because Athens was able to send out colonies. And so at this point, we simply presume that they also had commerce or some kinds of commerce, but we don't know that for sure. We're going to get there. But in any case, what's indicative of flourishing at this point is rest. What is indicative of motion is the destruction of those things that we see happening where there is rest. And not to give away too much at this point, but this contrast of motion and rest ultimately for Thucydides is going to come back to an understanding of the nature of human soul when it's at rest versus when it's in motion. And that, precisely that, is going to get us directly to our theme of techne, or the role of what we understand as technology in the life of man. There's something about the nature of soul when it is at rest and when it is at motion that's going to combine to have this amazing teaching about the role of techne in the life of man, most especially in political community and the flourishing of political community.